0: And answers. The hot topic we hear in today's news is socialism. What is it, and is it a good thing? Is this what our country should be headed towards or away from? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an international teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on our broadcast, Pat and his guest, Dr. Jay Richards, will be exploring the topic of socialism in a fascinating interview entitled, Why Socialism Always Fails. Now, here's Pat.
1: You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the issues of today. Well, in recent days, you have been seeing a rise in socialism or Marxism grow in popularity amongst the millennials. Many see capitalism as driven by greed and the rich exploiting the masses. Greed is good was a famous line from the 1987 movie Wall Street. And many see socialism as the biblical and compassionate model of economics. Well, is socialism the best way to grow an economy and eliminate and address the issue of poverty? Well, to help us understand this issue is Dr. J. Richards. Dr. Richards has his Ph.D. in philosophy and theology from Princeton Theological Seminary. He is the author of many books including the New York Times bestsellers Infiltrated and Indivisible. He is also the author of Money, Greed and God, a book that we highly recommend here, winner of the Templeton Enterprise Award and co-author of a book that I have read and got first turned on to Dr. Richards here, The Privileged Planet, his most recent book. Co-authored with Jonathan Witt is The Hobbit Party, the vision of freedom that J.R. Tolkien got and the West forgot. Dr. Richards is also a research associate in the Bush School of Business at Catholic University of America, a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute, and the executive editor of The Stream. And in recent years, he's been a distinguished fellow at the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics, a contributing editor of the American Enterprise Institute, and a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation, and a research fellow and director of action media at the Action Institute. And Jay, looks like uh, we need to find more things for you to do here.
2: (laughs) I, I haven't done all those things simultaneously they've been over the course of the last ten years or so
1: <laughs> <laughs> well welcome to evidence and answers
2: great to be with you
1: well Jay I guess the first question that we have here is why should Christians or you know why should people care you know the common person why should they especially mm-hmm. Christians why should they care about economics a lot of people think well God will take care of me so why really care about economics
2: well, economics is ultimately just the study of uh, how people buy and sell and exchange goods and services in the context of scarcity. So it's really about people, about the things we need, about the things we want. And if you care anything about your fellow human beings, if you think the Christians have something to do and something to say with, say, poverty, poverty in the third world or in our communities, then you've got to know something about economics because economics is where we learn about the kinds of policies. That actually help people and the kinds of policies that hurt people or actually kill them and so if you think poverty is anything that christians ought to be concerned about then you have to know something about economics so i really think a basic understanding of economics is if, anything we sort of, if we're going to comment rationally on on these questions we need to have at least some basic grasp of economic reality
1: yes you know for example poverty here in hawaii i mean if we just give the homeless food, and we give them free clothes and free housing and free Medicare. That, that may sound compassionate, but in reality, it really doesn't solve the problem of poverty. Isn't that right?
2: Yeah, I mean that you know, in certain emergency situations, you obviously in medicine, you know, somebody might have a symptom, and you give them medicine to treat the symptom, but it doesn't treat the disease. We often do that in the United States. We'll see a symptom of poverty or homelessness or something like that, and think, well, economic poverty is the cause when it's really actually a symptom. Whereas I know in Seattle, where I lived for many years, about ninety-five percent of the homeless problem is the result of either psychological problems or drug or alcohol addiction. It's not really an economic issue. In fact, the economy is booming in Seattle. There's an economic symptom to these underlying moral and social problems that we have to deal with. So very often, The way we respond to poverty, at least in the developed world, in other words, in places like the United States, treat treats symptoms. Sometimes by treating the symptoms, you actually make the underlying problem worse. And so, again, this is one of these things where you need to know how economies work. You need to understand how people respond to incentives if you're really going to help them rather than just feel like you're helping.
1: Right. And also many of the policies that you see coming for vote or that our state congress may be passing has a lot to do with economics and we need to understand the ramifications of it. For example, minimum wage, should one job Mm -hmm. be enough for everyone? Well, that sounds great, but there Mm -hmm. are some serious implications there that may actually be hurting the people you're trying to help.
2: In fact, that's almost any sensible economist will tell you that. It's really easy to understand this, that if you make, let's say we make the minimum wage $100 an hour, and you say, well, I want to do that, and then we'll all be rich. Nobody will be poor. But just because you make it illegal for an employer to hire someone for less than $100 an hour doesn't mean you're gonna make everyone's labor worth $100 an hour. What's supposed to happen to a 14-year-old kid who's never had a job? His labor maybe is worth $3 an hour. Now it's illegal for anyone to actually hire him. So what these sort of legally enforced or mandatory minimum wages actually do, rather than helping the poor, They harm the people whose labor is worth the least. So the very people who you presumably want to help are the ones that are most likely to be harmed by it. The only people really helped by it are people whose labor is already worth a little more than the minimum wage and they're just about to get a raise. And so, again, it's really the first two lessons of economics, the relationship between supply and demand and the way prices work in a competitive environment. If you understand that, you immediately understand that a minimum wage law like that is actually going to going to hurt them rather than help them. Unfortunately, according to polls, about 77 percent of the population doesn't understand that. so they think that the policy is a good idea. They just I assume that that 77 percent that supports raising the minimum wage actually wants to help people they just don't actually understand the basic economics so they don't realize that if we did it, it would actually hurt them.
1: Right, so not only must you have good intentions, I mean that's not the judge of policies but you must also understand some of the ramifications that go there and may actually work against you which is something you point out in your books and articles there.
2: That's right, in fact if anything I'd never thought I would spend my career just trying to get people to think carefully about economic reality. I mean, this was not really my long-term plan to do this, but as a Christian who studied philosophy and theology, I realized that so many of us as Christians, we have very good intentions, or our heart's in the right place, But when it comes to economics, our minds are not necessarily in the right place because we haven't studied basic economic reality. So we don't know the truths that are out there. And there are truths in economics just as there are truths in chemistry and physics that can be discovered. And they're not really all that complicated, but it does take a kind of intellectual disposition in which we pause and we say, okay – what's likely actually to help people? What policies have actually raised people out of poverty and what policies have not? The good news is that we actually have answered most of those questions. We tested most of these things globally in the 20th century, different kinds of policies. And some of them work and some of them don't work. And that's why I'm frustrated, honestly, about this resurgence of the popularity of socialism and Marxism, because it's an example of us just simply not learning the the lessons of recent history.
1: Right, and one of the things that you make clear is you have to distinguish between intention and the economic realities. I mean, a good intention alone doesn't make for, you know, good public policy or, you know, going to get you the economic outcomes that you're hoping for may actually work in the opposite. So you can't judge it just by the intention.
2: That's right. And I mean of course, God cares not just what we do, but why we do it. So if we do something that might look on the outside like a nice thing to do, like if I buy my wife a dozen roses, that might look nice. Let's say I'm buying her a dozen roses because I want to manipulate her and soften her up to do something she probably won't want to do, like let me go on a big three-day golf outing, right? Then all of a sudden what I've done is not a nice thing. Well, in in economic, why someone supports a policy doesn't actually affect anyone. It's it's what the policy actually does. So whatever a member of Congress means to do by a policy when he votes for it it's gonna do what it's gonna do and so that's really one of the central lessons of economics is focus on what's actually gonna happen as a result of the policy don't spend your time focusing on what you meant to do on on your warm feelings focus you know like a laser beam on what the policy is actually likely to do to real people
1: well let's begin by defining our terms here first let's define what is Capitalism?
2: Well, this is actually a tough question because people mm. don't know that capitalism is actually a Marxist word. It was invented in the early 1800s by a socialist to describe a system in which a few capitalists, the people that own all the private property and the factories and things like that, hire people and then exploit them. And that's what they meant by capitalism. And so then when Karl Marx developed his theory of communism, that's the word he used. Unfortunately, we've ended up using this same word to describe the, you know, the kind of generally free economic system in which you have limited government and private property and economic freedom. And so in some ways, we're using a Marxist word you know, even in, in when we start the discussion. Nevertheless, if you look up the definition in a dictionary, it's a perfectly serviceable word. It just basically refers to an economic system where there's private property, so private citizens and companies can own things. Uh, There's limited government, so government isn't in control of everything. And then there's economic freedom. So in other words, generally, people can buy and sell. They can hire people. You can take the job that you want and negotiate for salary freely without the government dictating all the terms. If you've got a system like that, then at least according to the dictionary definition of the term, you've got a capitalist system. And then you can say, okay, let's just talk about that as a system and say, okay, so which countries do really well? Are they the ones in which the government dictates prices and production quotas and everything? That is the kind of socialist systems that we had in the 20th century. We're systems with limited government, private property rights and economic freedom. And that it's a hands down answer. I mean, the, the systems that have the so-called capitalist uh, system in place, they tend to do well. Large numbers of people emerge from poverty. And the countries that don't have that tend to do very badly. I mean, that's the lesson of the 20th century, this attempt to have the state occupy all of society and dictate all the terms of economic exchange. They end in disaster. And so while maybe 150 years ago, and we didn't know how these things turned out, um, these socialist experiments might have made sense, but given the 20th century experiments between these two different ways of organizing the economy, Capitalism or what I'd really prefer to call free enterprise. It's just clearly the best of the the live alternatives
1: Those who are pro-socialism or Marxist side highly recommend you take a trip You know live for a couple months there in in the Soviet Union and in other places. I remember in China It's now a free market system actually people over there know communism died about 30 years ago but mm-hmm. uh, back in the days of China, yeah, the common person in, in the Soviet Union, in Russia, they were living in poverty and in third world conditions.
2: Absolutely. I mean, China's a weird situation because, as you mentioned, around... You know, in the 80s, and especially around 1990, they started opening up and creating these enterprise zones in places like Shanghai and Guangzhou, where they just essentially let the economy thrive, they let people sort of have their own businesses and determine prices, and those places are huge boom towns. I mean, Shanghai has been transformed in the last 30 years, and so while the government is still officially communist and Marxist, there are these large pockets in which people enjoy economic freedom, and that's where all the growth has actually taken place. Same thing happened in India. India, after it gained independence in 1948, adopted the kind of semi-socialism of the British Empire, and it languished in absolute poverty. Until around 1990, they started liberalizing the economy and opening it up to market reform, so they have a, a freer market. And several hundred million people have emerged from absolute poverty as a result of that. In fact, if you look just between 1990 and today, something like a billion people globally have emerged from absolute poverty, that is, living people living on $1 or $2 a day. A billion people. There have never been more people emerged from poverty at any time in history. And you can say, okay, well, it caused that. Well, it was not socialism. It was not government collectivizing and taking control of all the private industry. It was actually the result of... Private property rights and entrepreneurship and, and innovation and economic freedom and so if you're really concerned about hundreds of millions of people emerging from poverty then you want to do the thing that's been shown to actually be capable of doing that that's what's so distressing about especially Americans who have benefited from a system very much like this suddenly turning their backs on it and, and speaking fondly of socialism which has such a sorry history in the 20th century
1: now think to us what is socialism
2: yeah, again, this is, uh, the whole debate turns on the definitions of words. If you look up the dictionary definition of socialism in Merriam-Webster, it can mean several things. It can mean a, an economic system in which there is no private property, in other words, where the government owns everything. It can be an economic system in which the government owns the means of production. That is all the factories and all the kind of productive capacity. That's what the word means. And so when we see all these polls about millennials saying that they like socialism, the polls never define the word. And so as a result, people often import their own mental pictures into the word socialism. But if we use the word properly, as the dictionary defines it, what we're talking about is a system in which there's no private property, and the government owns and controls everything in the economy. Now, if you define it that way, not all that many people like it. But if you have some kind of vision of a nice Scandinavian village where everybody has a Volvo and plenty of fish in the refrigerator, if that's what you mean by socialism, well, yeah, that sounds like a nice image. But again, to return to this kind of basic lesson of economics, we don't want to be attached to just our kind of, the illusory mental images, what we want to do is focus on reality. What actually happens when real socialism is implemented, that is where the government literally collectivizes and confiscates private property. Well, we know from the 20th century that millions of people die, people lose their basic freedom, and poverty drastically increases. And so that's what actually happens when socialism is tried, as the term is defined, But unfortunately, right now, people are dealing with just these mental images and these nice kind of pictures they have of socialism that's not related either to the way it happened in the 20th century or to the way the word is defined in the dictionary. That's what makes this debate somewhat frustrating.
1: Yes, and many people see socialism as a classless society where everybody is equal. And if that happens, we get a peaceful utopia, I guess where the wealth is spread out to everyone and everybody and everybody lives equally. But in actuality, when you go to these countries, it's the few and those who are in government that are actually wealthy and end up controlling the wealth while everyone else lives in poverty.
2: No, that's exactly right, because it's almost always dislike about economic inequality that inspires really committed socialists. I debated a leading socialist at Notre Dame a a couple of months ago, and it was clear his whole argument was based on something about the evils of inequality. Now, there's certain kinds of inequality that are bad, of course. If the law treats people differently based on the color of their skin or something, that kind of inequality is terrible. But the idea that everyone should earn exactly the same amount, there's no reason to think that's even a worthy goal. What we want is for people uh, who are willing to work to be able to emerge from poverty and to have enough to live. A decent life. That's the goal that we ought to have. So if there's real poverty in a society, what do we need to do so that everybody that's willing to work will have enough to have a flourishing life? It doesn't mean everybody should have the same amount. And in fact, whenever you try to make people have the same amount or make them have the same outcomes, The only way you can do that is by controlling all the details, and so somebody has to do the controlling. Somebody has to distribute the jobs and the income, and those end up being the few elites, the ones that are wealthy as in the Soviet Union who had access to the nice apartments and houses and cars and things like that. And so the irony is that a dislike of inequality often inspires socialists, but then when socialism is implemented, you get much worse inequality and then the inequality isn't just the result of people, you know, preferring to pay some people more than, than other people. It's the result of an unjust political system which locks people into their station in life. And so that's the irony. You could hate inequality, implement socialism, and then you get even more of the worst kind of equality as a result of it.
1: Yes. Now many Christians will point to the model in the book of Acts, chapter four, mm-hmm. you know, verse thirty two. It says, Now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So there the biblical model would be socialism.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is, I hear this almost every day when I have this conversation. But remember, communism or really socialism is a system in which the government confiscates and owns private property. Notice that in Acts, There's nothing like that. The Roman centurions are not knocking down people's doors and confiscating their property. This is a situation in the very early church in Jerusalem in which Christians voluntarily agreed to share their possessions. Sharing is not socialism. The government, in fact, isn't involved at all. And if you look at the details there in Acts, what's actually happening? Well, you think, remember at Pentecost, thousands of Jews had come around, come from around the Roman world. They descended upon Jerusalem. And then at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit had descended. and and suddenly you had thousands of new Christians. So there were a few new Christians that were local there in Jerusalem so they still had access to their property and their jobs. And then thousands of these new Christians that were away from home and away from their jobs and their houses. And so in that unusual situation the Holy Spirit moved upon the church in in Jerusalem so that the locals the people that lived in Jerusalem would stole their property and sold their possessions so that they could share with their fellow believers. But for all we know This lasted for six weeks or six months until the new Christians went back to their homes. And so that's why this Kind of sharing and communal existence that happened there in Acts—it's never it was never held up in Christianity as the way all Christians should live. And in fact, it's, Paul doesn't commend this to any of the other churches that he's writing in the New Testament. And so, the kind of key thing to realize is that voluntary sharing among Christians under certain circumstances—that's just not socialism or communism because the government is not—it's not even involved. The government has nothing to do. And so, you can say. In it says families, you know, when we live in our families, we kind of live communal existences in which my my children have access to my possessions. That's not socialism. That's just something completely different. And so I think this is just the result of not being careful and looking at the details.
1: Yes, you know, you bring up a good point there, that people voluntarily shared what belonged to them with others. And you also make another great point. You know, a lot of the great charities are started by capitalists. Salvation Army. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I I say, think of charity as like the gleaning in the Old Testament. Remember, the Jews were commanded when they would, you know, have a farm and you go out to harvest, not to harvest their fields all the way out to the edges, but to leave some of the grain on the stalks, on the edges of the field, so that the poor, when they're passing by, would have a little extra food to live on. And so that's how charity is. But notice that those gleanings required the prior abundance of a big harvest. If there wasn't a farm that was growing a harvest, there wouldn't be any gleanings. In the same way, you can't have a nonprofit charity that's funded unless somebody has created wealth, has created value that was not there before and then has donated to it. And so in many ways, that's why the United States has all these massive charities, because we have a a much larger private sector, private companies that create value. And in fact, you look at the way poverty is actually alleviated in society, the vast majority of poverty is relieved by business itself. In fact, I would go so far as to say that ordinary business is the normal way in the world that God has created that poverty is alleviated. The charity sort of depends on that. It's like the gleanings that helps in emergency situations, but there's never been an entire country that emerged from poverty because of a charity. In fact, the charity is something that you know really first needs the funding of the prior abundance. And so I think very often we imagine, well, you know, entire countries are going to somehow grow rich by our charitable actions. Unfortunately, that's not the case. So in countries like Haiti, Haiti has more aid workers per capita than any country in the world, and yet it's still desperately poor. Well, why is that? Well, it has very bad property rights. It's almost impossible to buy and sell property. It has a very bad kind of rule of law, so there's a lot of corruption. does it have the kind of economic conditions that allows wealth to be created. And so in a situation like that, no matter how much charity you have, it actually doesn't even put a dent in the desperate poverty that exists there.
1: Yeah, that's a great point now Jay understanding what socialism really is why is it then that so many of young Americans you know are fascinated and are embracing socialism
2: well I think part of it's just kind of a discontent in some ways When life and death is a state people are a little more careful to look at these details but I think there's just a kind of a general dislike of our culture I mean some of it's perfectly honest a dislike it's a greed and consumerism that you might see in society. And I I agree, I think it's a bad thing, but that's not the same thing as free enterprise. That's not the same thing as as economic freedom. And so in some ways, if you look at millennials that are talking this way, they're not starving to death. They may be living in their parents' basement or something like that, but there's just always a desire for something different. And so I think as a a kind of hatred of our country has emerged for all sorts of complicated reasons. People say, well, what's sort of the opposite of the American experiment? And in the 20th century, it was definitely socialism. The United States was the leading critic and leading sort of advocate against socialism in the 20th century. And so part of it is a kind of anti-Americanism, just a dislike among young Americans for their country. But I think part of it is also just this basic confusion. They don't actually know what socialism is. And so when I hear young people talking about it, I say, okay, so do you think that the government should actually own everyone's houses, own everyone's cars, tell everybody what job they're going to do, own the Apple Corporation, and dictate who's going to own iPhones and who's not going to do that, where you're going to live, and how much you're going to pay. Nobody actually thinks that's a good idea. They don't want socialism applied to themselves.
0: We've run out of time. Thank you so much for joining us here on Evidence & Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold a conference, give him a call at 483-0586, or you may contact him through the Evidence & Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our homepage you'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Be sure to share our website with those around you. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran.